They were high school sweethearts that got married and had two kids. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Brunigs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to a special edition of our low-effort, low-quality podcast. In this case, uh, it is a Liz solo cast, so um, high-effort, possibly still low-quality, uh, but I, I can't deliver on the low-effort uh, guarantee at this time. This is the Black Death cast and I guess when all of this uh, began, uh, this at this point being the coronavirus pandemic, I thought, hey, it would be cool to do a solo cast on the Black Death because people are probably interested in pandemics right now. It was, after all, the deadliest pandemic in recorded history, which killed up to 200 million people uh, through the course of its many waves, its height in Europe fell in the mid-14th century or the late medieval period. Now, if you've ever wondered, by the way, why some people say the Middle Ages and some people say the Medieval Era and some people say the Dark Ages, it's because all of those terms have been used over time by different historians with different angles through contemporary opinion has kind of converged on medieval to my mind, that's a good thing, uh, though I would think that being a contemporary person, uh, so of course I'm convinced uh, by contemporary opinion, uh, but I think it's a, it's a good thing because Dark Ages implies that unlike, you know, the classical period or the early modern period, that the medieval period totally sucked and nothing interesting was happening and everyone was dumb and whatever, and that just flatly wasn't the case. Now, calling the medieval era the Middle Ages has a much better pedigree. Johannes Fried has this fantastic book recently translated into English entitled The Middle Ages. And in the introduction, he points out that this idea of a tripartite history, an era of gods and heroes and mythic beasts, and then an interim period where those things were passing away, and then the time that is now— has been a pretty common way of describing history since the classical period, actually. And by the 15th and 16th centuries, which we would put somewhere in the late medieval, early modern period, people were actually already writing about what we now call the medieval era in terms of this interim period. You know, but of course, that's still contentious uh, for obvious reasons. There never really was, or I should say, it always is an era of gods and monsters. So I will go with medieval. Of course, the word medieval is just a portmanteau of the Latin words for middle and age, so I guess there are some fights you just can't win. Anyway, historiography aside, 
I was initially just going to do a podcast with like some factoids about the Black Death I had picked up over time and found interesting. I'm like a crow with that kind of shit, you know, shiny stuff, interesting things I pick up, stash, bring out his conversational set pieces, which is not a bad way to do things as far as that stuff goes, I suppose. Uh, But then things kind of went from bad to worse. Like we all knew people were going to get sick. We knew that our healthcare system, or lack thereof, would be stressed. And some of us, Matt likely among them, knew that the interventions necessary to slow this thing down and save some lives would propel unemployment to Great Depression levels or higher, and that the economy would take a nosedive, and that over 100,000 Americans would die, and that the rest would be besieged by financial worries and the psychological and emotional effects of lockdown. Then there was the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed it, and everything began to look like 2020 was just on a fucking mission, man. And then, you know, somewhere in there, I had major surgery. What I'm saying is that it began to feel a little bit ridiculous, sort of verging on impious to put out a podcast of interesting factoids about a pandemic. Uh, So I thought I would wait until this thing was over. Uh, But important things are never over. They just change. And, And Matt kept reminding me, you know, I said I would make this for you and I wanted to do it. I mean, I felt like I owed it to you. And so what I have here for you is a weird thing, which I hope you'll like. Uh, But basically, I'm going to tell you some of my factoids in hopes of sketching out a picture of what this event or this cascade of events was like for the people who witnessed it. Uh, And then I'm going to tell you about a couple of artistic depictions of it that I like. And then I'm going to share some thoughts about it all. Uh, I've tried to load it with uh, primary sources, that is writing uh, that we have uh, that was laid down by people who were there, who witnessed what was going on. So, um, I, I mean, you know, primary sources aren't perfect, especially because, especially in the late Middle Ages, when you're getting into this period of kind of classical revival, uh, a lot of people are really trying to kind of match their descriptions of the Black Death to descriptions of other plagues in history as a kind of uh, homage. So uh, you see a lot of attempts to, uh, you know, sort of word for word almost replicate descriptions of the plague of Athens uh, in descriptions of the Black Death among people uh, who are who are interested in the classical era in the in the late medieval period. So, you know, that's just something that they, they did. You can't blame them. Writers today still do this in different ways. Uh, but all I'm saying is it does mean that, you know, primary sources themselves can be a little less than primary or more affected by, um, let's say, habits and fashions uh, than I think we would sometimes like to imagine. Uh, Just like not all writers today are being completely earnest or unmediated when they lay down a description of what's happening around them, neither were writers uh, back then. That being said, I have still gathered up uh, as many voices as I can uh, from people who were alive then and were watching what was happening. I thought that would be interesting uh, and, and keep it, you know, hue close to the reality of it. Uh, but anyway, uh, if you want to tap out at any time, because this is boring, I <laughs> will not uh, 
hold it against you. So chapter one here is the pestilence came. The venerable Bede, who was an English monk living in Northumbria in the 7th and 8th centuries, wrote what is known of uh, the first plague pandemic, a.k.a. the early medieval plague pandemic, or more colloquially, the plague of Justinian, for the enormous impact that it had on Byzantium. This was Europe's first go-round with what would be become known, I guess, as the Great Mortality the Black Plague, the Black Death, or simply the Pestilence, uh, which is what Bede called it in his famously ominous line, and then the Pestilence came from his Ecclesiastical History of the English People. Bede was sent to a monastery at the age of seven, and when he was still a boy, uh, probably about 14, the Pestilence did come, and it killed everyone at his monastery uh, except himself and one older monk, who remained uh, the only two alive uh, to say divine offices. The living, Bede says, did not suffice to bury the dead. And that was just the first go-round. The second one was worse. One reason was that Europe was more populous the second time around. So starting in about the 10th century, temperatures in the North Atlantic rose above average. This phenomenon is known as the medieval warm period. Uh, I don't know why it happened, though somebody surely does. It's just not my area of expertise. Uh, but it did get warm, and this was a major boon for agriculture. Summers in England, for instance, became so long and so warm uh, that farmers were able to plant vineyards and grow grapes for winemaking. Grain harvests were reliably strong. So, you know, some historians have argued that population actually began to decline slightly at the top of the 14th century before the Black Death arrived because the good eating had led to this exponential growth that in turn began to produce famine-like conditions, i.e., uh, the great weather meant there was so much food uh, that people could, you know, have a lot of kids, but then, uh, you know, that, that keeps multiplying and all of a sudden the food production can't keep up. Now, I'm not sure about that hypothesis myself. Um, I, I've seen it questioned in, let's say, compelling ways that I'm not going to absolutely bore you to tears with. Um, but there's certainly proof enough that there were prior to the plague's arrival, shortages in cereals, stocks, and so on, uh, and that there were a shitload of people relative to how many there had been uh, in that place before. Yersinia pestis, which is the bacterium responsible for the plague, was carried, as we all now well know, in the guts of fleas feeding on infected rats. It had begun spreading in Asia, uh, out of Mongolia, I believe, and eventually arriving in Eastern Europe by way of Central Asia. And from there, it began working its way upward from Southern Europe into its northern reaches. So it traveled along trade routes, came overseas, uh, but was pretty transmissible person to person. Uh, and it was, you know, as they say, a hell of a thing. Depending on how the infection develops in a person, or such as my understanding, it has, you know, three manifestations. 
bubonic plague is transmitted by infected fleas or rats. Sometimes the rats would like cut out the middleman and just do the biting themselves. <laughs> and that results in this general sickness, flu-like symptoms, malaise, as they say, and then the development of this stupendously dumb-sounding symptom called buboes, which are just swollen lymph nodes. But they're not swollen lymph nodes like your mom feeling under your throat, you know, I have a cold. Oh, no, your glands are swollen. No, it's not like that. Um, it's enormous sort of grapefruit melon-like swelling of lymph nodes uh, along the neck, the armpits, the groin. Uh, and these lymph nodes are where the bacteria, uh, the Yersinia pestis, would be replicating on in overdrive. So they would swell and swell, and in some cases would just begin to rot, just necrotize along with surrounding tissue. Uh, this is where we get the Black Plague moniker. That tissue would turn completely black as it began to die. Uh, and take on the look and, and smell of dead tissue. Or these inflected glands would just burst open and a ton of really foul-smelling, highly infectious pus would pour out of them. Either way, you would wind up with a lot of juices flowing. Now from there, uh, you could develop a severe blood infection. That would be septicemic plague, which is the rarest form. And I'm pretty sure it's something near 100% fatal. Uh, that is the kind of, you know, the, the, the development of plague where you start seeing people with hands, feet, completely blackened and necrotized. Uh, or if you happen to breathe in some of the airborne fluids belonging to another infected person, because this does come with a lot of coughing and stuff as the lungs fill up with fluid, you could develop what is called pneumonic plague. And that is also, I think, nearly 100% lethal. So however it went down, if you contracted it, there was basically a one in three chance you were going to die of it. And it was an ugly death. Now, medievals were no strangers to sickness and death. They saw it all the time in all kinds of manifestations. They were totally used to a huge array of like horrifying work-related disfigurements. Just think of like the god-awful damage you could do with the slip of a scythe or in a blacksmithing smelter or whatever. These things happen constantly. And the medievals were not squeamish. Uh, but the Black Death, which was particularly transmissible, I, I think I, I read in, in one uh, case uh, that uh, study that it could travel a mile a day in terms of, of transmission, which for that day and age was remarkable. Uh, and it was particularly lethal and it ended lives in a spectacularly gruesome way. You know, we're talking about people decomposing while they were still alive or so it appeared. And this, I think quite understandably horrified medieval people. I remember reading in Jeffrey Burton Russell's Lucifer, The Devil in the Middle Ages, uh, which is a weird book by a weird guy, but enjoyable nonetheless, something that helped me understand why Satan usually looks so corny in medieval art. I mean, like he's always like a kind of weird hairy beast thing composed of various animal parts, something like that. And sure, I mean, if you saw like a cow parrot 
ape thing in real life, that would probably be pretty freaky. But when you look at the page, it doesn't really inspire a lot of dread. Um, But Russell wrote, the symbolism was intended to show the devil as deprived of beauty, harmony, reality, and structure, shifting shapes chaotically, and is a twisted, ugly distortion of what angelic or even human nature ought to be. What Russell pointed out, which I hadn't really seen before, is that far from being like thoughtless simpletons, the medieval people had the kind of philosophical grounding that feels almost overstated today, although, of course, we also have our unexamined maps for thinking. At any rate, for these people, there was a general oneness of things which Charles Taylor identifies as enchantment. But, but all that means is that the order of society, the order of nature, the order of the cosmos, it was all one thing animated by one thing. Uh, if you've ever read uh, you know, Dante's uh, Inferno and then uh, you know, Purgatorio and Paradiso, at the end, I believe, of Paradiso, he says something along the lines of, you know, and, and then I could almost glimpse uh, this oneness of it all, uh, this love that moves the sun and the other stars. I've always thought that was really beautiful. And to me, that uh, sums up the sort of idea of, of medieval enchantment, that there is this love in the universe, and it is, of course, the love of God, and it moves not only the sun and the stars and sort of the, creates the music of the spheres, but it also animates society uh, and its various hierarchies and human relations and so forth. And, I mean, I understand we're not a, a huge fan of, uh, of the feudal system at this point, and I'm not saying that it's God-ordained, but I'm saying that's how they saw the world and the way that they saw it was that in its right functioning, this was all very orderly and very beautiful. And that's precisely what the Black Death upset. Henry Knighton, a contemporary English Augustinian canon, wrote The Pope granted plenary remission of all sins to all receiving absolution at the point of death and granted that this power should last until the following Easter, and that everyone might choose his own confessor at will. And there was a great cheapness of all things for fear of death. For very few took any account of riches or possessions of any kind. Sheep and oxen strayed through the fields and among the crops, and there was none to drive them off or collect them but they perished in uncounted numbers through all districts for lack of shepherds because there was such a shortage of servants and laborers. And that image has always stuck with me for some reason. You know, you go into a village, formerly an ordinary place, bustling with ordinary activities, and instead find doors hanging open for want of anyone to close them, you know, the occupants of houses having all died, perhaps inside, and the streets where commerce had once sped along are instead populated by these thin, starving oxen wandering unyoked, the only living creatures for miles. 
There's a scene like this, actually, in Shusaku Endo's great Catholic novel, Silence, featuring an abandoned town overrun by prowling cats. And uh, I think there is a, a certain allusion there uh, to the evil of, of life just suddenly upended in, in some inexplicable and sudden way. Landscapes began to change. Crops went untended. Livestock died and rotted where they fell. Carrion crows gathered in enormous swarms over endless carcasses. And human relations, too, began to warp and shift. Boccaccio, the writer of the Decameron, said, Neither any advice from doctors nor any medicine could cure this sickness, partly because its nature was not understood and partly because no one knew its cause or how to treat it. Thus, not only were few cured, but nearly all those affected died on the third day after the appearance of symptoms, or soon afterwards. It was not enough that men avoided each other, or that no one took thought for his neighbor. Even relatives visited but seldom, and if they did, they kept their distance. The disaster had struck such horror into the hearts of men and women that brother abandoned brother, while uncles, sisters, and wives left those dear to them to perish. What is even more incredible is that parents refused to visit or care for their own children as if they were not of their own flesh. Florence was full of corpses. Needless to say, the economies of medieval Europe were devastated, crops failed, trade faltered, commerce slowed, and in many cases, uh, completely stopped altogether. That the world was ending was taken by many for granted. In Siena, Agnolo de Tura wrote, Members of a household brought their dead to a ditch as best they could without priest, without divine offices, nor did the death bell sound. And in many places in Siena, great pits were dug and piled deep with the multitude of the dead. And they died by the hundreds, both day and night, and all were thrown in those ditches and covered with earth. And as soon as those ditches were filled, more were dug, and I buried my five children with my own hands, and so many died that all believed it was the end of the world. Suspecting a divine judgment in the plague, medieval Christians began murdering local Jews. In Epidemics and History, Disease, Power, and Imperialism, Sheldon Watts writes, in exemplary fashion, 900 Jews were burned alive at Strasbourg on St. Valentine's Day, 1349, before the plague actually came near. Only later that spring did the arrows of pestilence rain down on the tight-packed medieval town and its preachers. To his credit, the then-pope, Clement VI, secured in sealed-off rooms in his palace in Avignon, southern France, where he worried about demons trapped in the steel-frame mirrors, condemned the slaughter, for, as he noted, the plague stuck down Christians and Jews alike. 
In fact, so much so that a certain kind of nihilism began to spread in some quarters with a grim kind of seize the day mentality gaining purchase. Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow you may die. I mean, they had a point. One Westminster monk, John of Reading, observed that some priests in plague times abandoned their various vows and obligations and instead, quote, lusted after the things of the world. Henry Knighton says that high-born women wasted their goods and abused their bodies, the meanings of which you can probably decipher. On the other hand, Christian practice also took on some unprecedentedly bizarre forms during the Black Death. Probably everybody recalls the Monty Python guys smacking themselves in the face with Bibles while chanting, but the whole flagellant thing was perhaps even weirder than that. The flagellants were a lay, meaning neither clerically directed nor church-ordained movement of violently anti-Semitic men who formed processions of chanting and, yes, self-flagellating. They wore basically nothing by the day's standards, being shoeless and shirtless and so forth, uh, sometimes cloaked in white cloaks, uh, which you can think of as being in kind of a sandwich board shape, I suppose, uh, with red crosses on the front and back. But of course, the whole point of the flagellant thing was that everybody got to see you bleed, so there wasn't much use in clothes. Uh, there's plenty of church writing from the period questioning the whole flagellant thing, and not least because it was so obviously erotically charged. I mean, the medievals were medievals, but they were also people like you and me. They could see a bunch of like semi-nude guys whipping themselves and achieving a weird state of ecstasy and know there was more going on there than over-pronounced piety, if you catch my drift. Anyway, it was understood even at the time to be kind of bizarre and was short-lived. At this point, Christianity had been around for more than a millennium. And even so, the faith of these pious people began at times to slip. One prayer from a 12th century incantation recovered from an English manuscript includes entreaties to, well, Holy Goddess Earth, parent of nature, who dost generate and regenerate the earth, thou guardian of heaven and sea, in hopes of healing. Those were, of course, pre-plague days, but not by a terribly long shot. It's not difficult to imagine these pagan impulses still very much alive in those years, re-emerging as it seemed the God of Christianity may have abandoned his people altogether. So, a pretty grim picture, and it's hard to blame people in modernity trying to depict this period for focusing on the horror of it. I mean, it's what I've done here up to a certain point. But I think the zombie apocalypse structure has unfortunately dictated a lot of how we now think about this whole calamity. I'm thinking of movies like the 2010 shit show Black Death. Uh, and while I certainly understand the impulse, the fact is that the millions of people who died in the great mortality weren't brainless zombies clamoring for flesh or whatever. They were human beings who were sick. And they were suffering from something they didn't understand and they were trying to overcome it. So toward that end, I wanted to recommend in this uh, chapter, I suppose, uh, a couple of pieces of art 
uh, that I personally like, which include aspects of the Black Death. The first is a completely bizarre uh, 1973 Japanese animated, and I use this term very loosely because it's more like mostly panning shots of watercolor paintings than some short animated sequences in there. Sort of like uh, reading Rainbow, if you ever had to watch that in school. Similar, similar stuff going on here. Uh, the film is called Belladonna of Sadness. The Japanese title is, of course, different, but I won't offend your ears by attempting to pronounce it. Um, to say that Belladonna is an experimental film is to understate matters significantly. Uh, I would recommend my my colleague Glenn Kenny's great review of it. He he reviewed it when the remastered version came out, I think, in fourteen. It was relatively recently, but it's available on like Amazon Prime Video. Uh, if you like to uh, stream a film or two, which I myself do. Uh, but it's an erotic uh, sort of reverse morality tale, I suppose, about a French peasant woman, Jeanne, uh, who's raped by right of prima nocta, which is that dubiously historical phenomenon we discussed in our last talk about vampires, and then finds her life and marriage cataclysmically affected by poverty, trauma, resentment, you know, in that sense, it's it's actually a, a very decent depiction of what life is often like for survivors of sexual assault. But I did want to put out there that that is a, a major feature early in the film, uh, in, you know, in case people are, are careful about the way they consume media that deal with those issues, which I certainly understand. So into this noxious stew of experiences enters the devil who takes the form of, and there's literally no other way to put this, a tiny penis and seduces Jeanne into his service as a witch. She ends up exiled from her village, living in a wooded haven prepared for her by Satan, serving the people of her village. And, you know, the decision to help out the very people who like ridiculed and expelled her is not really explained, but more on that in a minute. Lo and behold, the Black Death strikes while Jeanne is living as a witch in this sort of idyllic meadow. Uh, and she ends up successfully treating plague victims who are themselves also exiled and ostracized. Uh, an experience that lots of plague victims did suffer. You know, one in three death rate means that, uh, you know, a lot of people who contracted the, uh, the, the bacterium, however it manifested in their bodies, they survived. Uh, and their lives weren't necessarily great at that point, right? Um, they were understood uh, to be contagious in some sort of rudimentary way. Uh, oftentimes they were um, sort of disfigured by what they had been through. Um, and, and they themselves could find themselves uh, exiled. Um, and I, I think that was a, a pretty typical experience for uh, somebody who survived plague. There is a Catholic saint, St. Roch, who, who seems to have... Um, suffered that fate. So in a way, the fate of these plague victims and the fate of Jeanne, this main character who is at this point a witch, are paralleled in certain respects. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not going to spoil the ending here, but suffice to say it's wilder than the exposition, which is pretty wild. It's the kind of movie where you get like a third of the way through it and you're like, surely to God, this thing is almost over. No, it's not. 
uh, you know, certainly if you like a, an art film here or there, I, w- I would give it, a, give it a whirl. Belladonna is based on a 19th century French book on Satanism and witchcraft by Jules Michelet, who was a profoundly anti-clericalist and had, uh, needless to say, a few bones to pick with the Catholic Church. So accordingly, his reading of witchcraft was that it represented a rebellion by oppressed women who were more or less practicing medicine, you know, against the hegemonic ignorance of the church. Now, you'll find that this is a, a not uncommon view even these days, especially in like what I think of as like the intellectual Tumblr zone. Um, you know, and, and it strikes me as pretty fanciful. Um, witch hunts and witch burnings weren't really a medieval thing. I mean, they did happen, but they were relatively rare. Uh, They were much more common in the early modern period, and plenty of them were carried out by perfectly enlightened Protestants, uh, right? Such as our famous forebearers in Salem. Uh, But but secondly, I, I mean, I assume that much of what was labeled witchcraft in the medieval period, especially toward the early and high Middle Ages, was just sort of unreconstructed druidic religion about which we know at this point very little. But similar to that incantation from that 12th century manuscript uh, I just described, I, I assume a lot of it um, was that. And and then I think that t- toward, um, you know, the early modern period, as time goes on, you begin to have this uh, sort of thick, mythology of witchcraft that builds up, at which point it does become um, this outlet for uh, rebellion or resistance of of these highly puritanical uh, norms. But anyway, just trying to introduce a little bit of nuance into this, uh, uh, this little interlude. So what I like about uh, Belladonna, the movie, is not that it's historically accurate, or particularly astute about the period or its politics, but that it's so full of color and movement, which is to say something about a movie that's a lot of panning shots of watercolor paintings. But it's not just drab, sort of dirty, faceless masses moldering in open graves. There are people there with lives, however bizarre, which are sketched uniquely. It's not all death, in other words. There's sex, I mean, there's a lot of that, There's anger, jealousy, resentment, class, desire, and the whole rich tapestry, as it were, of human life. And the Black Death is a piece of that story, but it's not the whole story. Uh, And another good piece uh, that hits this theme is uh, Laid Waste, which is a graphic novel by Julia Grofer. Uh, It's G.F. O with an umlaut, R-E-R. So I hope that I'm pronouncing it somewhere in the zone of, of correct. Um, but uh, it's a graphic novel that's this wonderfully observed narrative about just people living their lives in the midst of the Black Death, this almost unfathomable crisis. And there's sex, there's birth, there's loss, there's grief, there's hope, there's love. It's a, it's a very moving book. And I highly recommend it. So, you know, that brings us uh, to our third chapter here. 
and maybe it gets me to the point of all this and the reason that I finally decided that it was sort of worthwhile to do a podcast of all things during a plague. Yes, millions upon millions of people died during the Black Death, but even more of them lived. And I don't mean they survived. I mean they lived. While the flagellants were doing their weirdo shit and encouraging pogroms and the church was momentarily enriched by a windfall of bequests, there were also selfless priests, nuns, monks who did their best to comfort and care for the sick and dying, although they knew perfectly well that they themselves would very likely get sick and die. According to one estimate, only 27% of aristocratic and wealthy England died in the mortality that's that one in three number, as opposed to 42 to 45 percent of the country's parish priests. So these are just ordinary priests out in the community, uh, you know, doing their daily thing. This estimate was produced by counting vacancies in bishops' records during the course of the plague, which indeed seemed to reflect that parish priests were, to the best of their abilities, still trying to administer last rites to the sick and dying and that they died at higher-than-average rates for their efforts. Recent tests carried out on the bodies of nuns who were buried during the plague have found that entire orders were wiped out by the Black Death due to their commitment to offering whatever comfort they could to the sick. Meanwhile, the workers who lived quickly realized a couple of things. They realized that while they may have been bound to their feudal lord's lands like chattel before, they certainly weren't now. I mean, who was going to enforce it? And that they were so few in number compared to pre-plague years that they could charge pretty much whatever they wanted for their labor. And this so freaked out the aristocracy that you begin to see in post-plague legal codes, English authorities laying out laws preventing workers from bargaining their wages up and leaving their prior estates. It's kind of fun. But these shitty labor laws just proved that the jig was up. Whatever mystical bond had existed between the peasantry and the landed gentry and the feudal system had collapsed entirely. Everybody could see right through it. From there, it was just a skip, hop, and a jump to what Ellen Meiskens Wood called agrarian capitalism, which then gives rise to industrial capitalism and eventually to socialism. And it's no surprise that romantic Christian socialists in the 19th century uh, tended to idealize the medieval era, because it was, especially in the wake of the Black Death, in its way, a period of class awakening. Today, Descendants of Europeans affected by the plague show genetic disparities compared to groups who weren't impacted by the Black Death, meaning that the population of Europe bottlenecked in such a way so as to permanently alter the genetic code of survivors. People who descend from survivors of the plague show a greater resistance to all kinds of infections, including, some researchers speculate, HIV and AIDS. The role that Yersinia pestis played in all of this is open to debate and discovery, of course. But the point that I mean to make is that the effect that the Black Death had on the European genome is proof that even among all the horror and the death, people lived. They loved, they had sex, they gave birth, they raised children. 
they looked at the absolute wreckage of society around them and said, we're going to make it somehow. And whether they knew it or not, they almost certainly didn't. They made that decision and the enormous bequest to the remainder of human history, much for our sake. And we owe a lot to them, I think, especially in times like these when we're looking for ways to carry on. So I hope this has been an interesting uh, podcast for you guys. I know you want me to solve the crime. Uh, This is something that I am working on uh, putting together for you. Uh, that that other uh, solo cast I promised and um, will try to get to you uh, as soon as possible. But thank you for bearing with us uh, and thanks for listening. Good night.